My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot. Scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. Really pleased to have you join us and uh, joining uh, Dana Lowell, who is uh, a friend and uh, a colleague who I've uh, worked with, uh, co-founder of Seamless IoT. Dana, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great, Steve. It's, It's fantastic to be here. Glad to be speaking with you again, and thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Well, we were talking about what we would, the theme of this podcast, and uh, um, you have years of experience in the automotive uh, business through, uh, uh, from General Motors through to Fosia, and uh, you've been instrumental in um, setting up an organization, Seamless, that helps bring uh, entrepreneurs and and the Babel fish, uh, to use a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, reference that translates between large corporations, and they don't get much bigger than car companies, and uh, these small entrepreneurs. So you've been dealing with that ability to uh, bring those together. So I thought we could call this episode How to Make Friends and Influence People in the World of IoT and automotive, and I'd love to talk to you about your experiences in doing that, any observations you have about IoT and automotive, and uh, any other fun stuff that we get to on cars and where that technology is going. So first of all, let's get into this challenge of, you know, what are the challenges of, uh, that face large corporations that want to innovate on one hand, and small startup entrepreneurial companies that want that see these big companies as uh, as uh, organizations they want to get into and partner with uh, is that easy is it hard what are the challenges yeah i mean this is steve you and i have talked a lot about this over over our time together um, i mean the dna of a large multinational 
corporation or enterprise is very different than a startup. And um, I, this analogy may get off track, but I mean, I kind of look at it like hippopotamuses and hummingbirds. And, and you know, the, the hippopotamus is, is large. It lives a long time. It, it minimizes movement or change to save energy. Um, and it's, you know, it's more about incremental change and process improvement. While a startup is about, you know, speed, it's about, it's about burning lots of energy, um, short learning loops, um, and, you know, moving faster and ability to pivot quickly, depending on where it gets signals on, positive signals of, of where it needs to go. And those are very different, you know, uh, DNAs to match up. And it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge, I think, for every corporation to figure out how do I get innovation from startups and how do I successfully partner with startups. When you're in a, a corporate setting, you know, if you're in a big corporate, it's, I'm talking about budgets and I'm talking about approval processes and I'm talking about process adherence. You know, and the mindset in a, in a Startup is about, you know, is it, it's fundraising, it's experiments sex, successfully completed, it's where I'm getting market signals. So they're, they're talking about different things. There's almost a different language between those two organizations. Um, you know, if I, my career on the corporate side, it's really about optimization of process, optimization of footprint, um, risk reduction for the corporation. Well, you know, if you talk to the startup about that, they're talking about, you know, how do I get the proof of value and how do I scale? You know, the different kinds of objectives and the objectives cascade into, you know, how you get compensated with your, your bonuses and, and uh, ultimately your, your budgets. Um, so there's different behaviors that are encouraged inside both organizations. So this is, I think it's a great, Great metaphor. You've got this kind of the, the, the clock cycle, the metabolism of the hummingbird. You've got this hippopotamus that has strong, huge, very visible, uh, uh, moving, but moving slowly and, and really has struggles to move fast. So we'll get into what goes wrong when the hummingbird and the hippo uh, uh, come into proximity. But let's just kind of drill into you know, why? And, and I guess for the, it's very probably obvious for the startup, you're, 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 you're this brand, you're creating this brand, you're this new thing, and you try to want to scale, I guess, quickly. Um, and uh, you see the opportunity to sell lots of your stuff, either with or to the, uh, this Goliath. Why is it worth why, why do corporates even care about these startups? Is it, are they a luxury? Uh, how important is it for corporates to work with startups? Um, I, well, I think it's critically important because I think really the innovation um, that comes to a corporate from the startup is really irreplaceable. I mean, I think in a corporate setting, you're looking at a budget that's, you know, 90% today focused and 10% tomorrow focused. While in a startup, you're looking at a budget that's 10% today focused and 90% tomorrow focused. And bringing those two things together, you know, a company that has scale and ability and resources and, you know, purchasing ability and all the different infrastructure things that can be brought to bear from a corporate standpoint in terms of 
access to market, access to technology, bringing in the startup that has the ability to really focus on some of the growth vectors and the market signals that the corporate is not going to be able to you know, respond to today because it's focused on today. But the startup can focus on those weak market signals that really are going to be tomorrow for the, the large corporate enterprise. And so marrying those two things together, I think, is of critical importance. I think that's the opportunity that exists um, for the startup to part, find the right strategic partners and for the corporate to have the fuel to get them to what tomorrow is going to be. I, I totally agree. And, and we've all seen, those of us who've been around a while, have seen companies that seemed uh, indomitable. They, they were indestructible. They were so successful. They had books written about their success. And then suddenly they collapsed because they just couldn't adapt. Technology is driving change. And, uh, you know, the Kodaks uh, the, uh, and, and a lot of the car companies, you see what the, the challenges they're going through and they've got to essentially eat their own babies. They've got to kill off these uh, businesses, but the timing is critical. And so, you know, we've even seen uh, big companies that say, look, we're just going to kill you and they're going to spin off businesses that they, they think will just not be able to flourish because they've hired people and they've got the processes and the DNA is, is just incapable of pivoting and uh, adapting in the way that is necessary for startups. So I think we're both convinced that they have to work together. Why is this not easy? Why did, why did your employer need you to do what you do to bridge the gap between the small guys and the big guys? Well, I mean, I, I think why it's not easy is, I mean, it's a, it's the cultural thing that you and I are already talking about. And then there's also that the existing processes and practice in a, in a multinational corporation are based upon, you know, very high scale, you know, talking hundreds of thousands or millions of units. And the processes are designed to engage with companies that are able to be at that scale. And so if you take a startup and you ask them to engage um, with something that's used to dealing with something that's in hundreds of thousands or millions of units at scale, and a startup is still in the process of defining technology, team, business model, those are just grossly out of sync with one another. So you need some type of a, a buffer me mechanism to take up that slack. And, and that's been the rise of a lot of these third-party organizations, such as you know, accelerated programs, incubator programs, whether they're independent or they're, um, uh, you know, uh, inside the organization, built into the organization. And that's, there's been a lot of these third-party kind of programs to help take the slack out of, or create the, um, the bandwidth to bring on a startup into an existing organization. The other problem is inside, you know, existing uh, corporate is that, you know, the, the payback uh, in the bonus structure is, is usually not is tied to, you know, today's revenue and profitability, not what it's going to be five years from now if this startup is successful and this technology is adopted. So there's not the reward structures are typically not in place within the business groups inside a corporate to really foster, um, and, and, and they need fostering. Uh, foster startup success. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's critically success. It's critical to the success of entrepreneurs in big companies 
and in startups to understand this, to survive. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the manifestations of this problem I saw at Williot is we were excited. We we're closing a deal with a really big company and it came time to negotiate the contract. And we were given a hundred page contract that we had to negotiate. And we're like, this, if we do this, this will blow our entire legal budget for the entire year. We just can't afford to even get advice on what you're sending us. And they're like, oh, uh, yeah, let me uh, give us a few days. <laughs> and then uh, we finally, realized, oh, yeah, we were dealing with you in the kind of peer-to-peer uh, -peer manner, and uh, we can probably dispense with most of this. So that kind of worked out. But I feel like... Um, you know, there's a lot of collateral damage that can get done by stuff like that, where you end up, and, 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 and let's say this startup and this big company end up, you know, they end up trying to make that work. And the, the, the big company can push a whole bunch of costs and slow down the small, small company. And so all the advantages of dealing with the company end up being nullified. You end up you know, getting the worst of both worlds, which is uh, just a, a nightmare. So how did, so how did Seamless come about and how does something like Seamless help solve this problem? Well, I mean, Seamless is one of those third-party mechanisms. Um, so, I mean, it was created as a regional e ecosystem, innovation ecosystem, that we were able to take some leading manufacturing companies located in Michigan, so you had you know, Steelcase, and, and you had automotive in, in Persia, you had Whirlpool, Amway, a couple of healthcare providers um, uh, in, in the system that were locally uh, headquartered in the Michigan area. We brought them together. They were non-competing. Uh, the idea was, one, to get rid of all uh, the middleware, to get rid of stuff like, you know, you talk to one of the large corporates about getting an NDA. You know, that can be a month, couple of month long process to get an NDA for a startup. A startup doesn't have time to wait for that. Get them into the supply system, you know, you're, so that they can be paid. Um, that's might be a couple of month process. So, you know, for a startup that's looking at what their opportunity costs are every day, it may not be, you know, maybe in the cash burn mode, you know, for them to wait three months before serious conversations can occur is not acceptable. So we, took all that middleware, kind of put it in seamless so we could do, you know, 24 hour turns on NDAs and get them into a payable system quickly. And then the other thing was to be able to provide different um, industrial sectors. So we could have, you know, for example, say um, Steelcase, Whirlpool, Forcia as an example, you had three different sectors, office furniture, uh, white goods, home appliances, and automotive. And so for a startup, you're engaging with three sectors simultaneously and you're getting to look under the hood of those three sectors in terms of determining what's the, my fastest route to market, where can I scale most quickly, which one of these market opportunities is giving me the strongest market signals. And then from the corporate standpoint, we're able to blend our resources and obviously costs to do that proof of value with the startup. So it really, it's really kind of a mean um, innovation, startup, corporate engagement model. Yeah, I think 
I'm just thinking about what is given that we have entrepreneurs in big companies in our audience, we have entrepreneurs in small companies. Um, and I think you have a lot of experience helping big companies get that system in place, uh, which uh, I think is uh, valuable. So the call to action for uh, big companies is pretty simple. It's like they can call you and you can help them. But what, you know, what does a small company need to do knowing that there's this compatibility problem? I guess, is it just look for, use the fact that these organizations exist and look for the innovation team, know that you're going to have a better conversation if you find someone who's actually prepared to talk your language and be responsive. Is that the advice for a, for a startup? I, I think for a startup, I think, um, you know, because we do invest or we have done investing. Um, I think that the thing when I talk to the startups is where can you scale fastest so that you can get your markets established, get your market signals. Um, and, you know, what's the chance of commercialization with that market? You know, so if you're looking at um, multiple sectors, you know, what's the speed I can get through that sector to be commercial? And what kind of uh, probabilities do I attach to it? You know, does, do I have the right relationships? Is the product fit really good? Am I solving a problem that's very obvious? You know, and that's the market that you need to prioritize. Um, I mean, I've always appreciated um, the Williot EAP program because I, I thought it provided discipline on both sides, really, in terms of, this, of what you were looking for and also what you needed from the corporate partner. Most startups don't have that. Most startups are just really looking for, you know, a signal, and they tend to wander about. Um, I, what I really liked about your program is the EAP program provided, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a format of how we were going to work together and some rigor and discipline about what were the lessons learned and objectives to be achieved for both parts. Yeah, I think it has worked well for us. And I think it's something that just, uh, evolved out of necessity we just realized that we were small and there were so many opportunities and how do we deal with that and what we found we, we actually thought that this was going to be a real turnoff to our potential customers asking for some money um, having this kind of uh, process it worked with our process it's kind of basically well we're going to do some uh, designing and we're going to do some uh, prototyping and then we're going to do some piloting and this is what it costs and we actually thought ah this is going to be a struggle but what we found was actually the innovation teams and organizations like seamless were like yeah ah, this makes sense and uh, um, it didn't slow things down at all it actually was uh, a really positive thing so uh, and, and you guys seamless was one of the first to kind of that we work with in that way and uh, so we actually have you to thank Dana yeah. for kind of encouraging us and mentoring us in and uh, to, to kind of stick with that process. Yeah, so, yeah. I, 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 to me, frankly, as a corporate guy, when I see a, a startup that isn't asking for money, you know, that tells me that they're not a very good startup. They won't be around, yeah. right? They're, all they've done is just signed up for burning their own cash and 
without an up outcome. Uh, and that, so that's, that to me is problematic and a warning sign really in terms of the quality of Starbucks. Yeah, it's uh, becomes, um, for us, it became just a qualifier. It's like, are we going to end up as being uh, one line on someone's status report or is this going to get visibility? Is, are we, uh, we're asking for some money here. And so that means that, you know, uh, leadership need to get involved and we want that exposure. We want them to, to kind of show that there's real interest and they're going to be serious and they're going to follow through because the money's very, very valuable. But it's as much as anything, it's a validation you can take to your board to say, look, these people are serious. And it's also you just get better results from the partnership because they've thought about it and uh, someone had to do an ROI on making that investment. So, um, but I think it's, I mean, I remember I was in a startup years ago and innovation teams didn't exist. And it was a nightmare getting involved uh, with these big companies. And I, I see now that things have changed and it's really important for people to know where to go in the organization. Um, but I think what you said is, is beyond that, it's some real thought about uh, how your offering is gonna, what it's gonna, what difference it's gonna make to the corporation and the, uh, the ability to ramp and many, many factors. So, I don't know. I feel like maybe now is the time for us to step to this other subject area. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of these engagements that you've been at the center of have been around IOT. I'm sure not all of them. What's, what are you seeing in IOT and automotive? It's not always obvious to people what that intersection is. We think about IOT and home automation and, uh, maybe in, uh, in some industrial context, but what, what's the impact of IoT on automotive and where do you see interesting stuff happening? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Um, well, I, I mean, I think like if I think about the areas that are really interesting, I think, you know, the connected customer supply demand chain management is, is really interesting. Because if you think about a tier one or tier two or tier three automotive or any supplier, 
you know, you're making your thing, then you're shipping it to somebody that puts it into another thing, then ultimately ships it into a, a consumable. And in my industry, that consumable, the vehicle, OEM's car goes to a dealership and then it goes to a customer and it may go to another customer. You know, we lose sight of that once it goes to the OEM for assembly. So the ability for us to now be able to understand who the end customer of our product is and be able to look at things like functionality and performance, you know, in an in a ongoing manner is a tremendous amount of insight that really the power of that, I don't think the industry is fully grasped yet. I think the, the OEMs obviously understand it, but I think the tier one, two, three community is only beginning to get their heads around, well, what can I do in terms of managing and knowing the customer better in terms of how they're using my product? Because that's typically tied up ultimately you're getting feedback from the OEM in terms of performance in things like warranty claims. Maybe it's JD Power surveys you're going to get that are like, you know, it kind of giving you an abstract view of how your product may be performing, but nothing really direct. So I think that that's an area that to me was really exciting. And again, you know, it was something that we've, we've talked a lot about. Um, I think, I think another area that's really interesting and, you know, the one that's best exploiting it now is probably Tesla, but, you know, over the air updates and be able to, you know, both fix and patch uh, the performance of your product over time being able to update it over time. Because in my uh, industry, you know, a car depreciates 30%, 40% when you drive it off the lot. What if you started thinking about the car appreciating over time because you're constantly being able to update uh, functionalities in the vehicle? Um, so that's really intriguing. You can think about things like, you know, obviously um, upgrading some functions, but you can think about a winter set of features, maybe a summer set of features that can be changed. Maybe there's special updates that can be given on when you're going to go on vacation or when you're going to go out on date night. I mean, so there's this big opportunity in terms of being able to push and pull information from the vehicle to kind of customize performance, improve it as it, as it ages, rather than just letting it be a large depreciating asset. This is uh, this is super interesting, and uh, I, I think uh, it kind of changed the role of the the automotive company, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know, but it certainly changes the way I look at it. They they, they become even more of a platform player because I, I don't know. As a, if you're a component supplier and you want to enjoy the uh, and offer the benefits of the over-the-air updates. Are you basically at the mercy of the uh, OEM? The, 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 you know, Tesla's probably not going to make it easy for someone that makes uh, a component to do that over-the-air thing. Uh, you're kind of, do they have kind of the control of that gateway? Yeah, I, I think that that's something that's still going to be, um, it's still a little bit of a to-be-determined ground. I, I think ultimately it's going to depend on what's the value we can deliver through those updates. And those updates yes. may obviously be managed through the OEM, but if we can deliver value in that update, maybe we, we now understand a comfort algorithm that provides um, better uh, lumbar comfort or better heating regime for the vehicle or uh, better safety setting uh, in terms of helping with alertness. I mean, if we can determine those, those values and provide those values, then 
I think that uh, ultimately that end consumer um, will benefit from them. And the OEM will allow us to push some of that through, whether it comes through their update or an update that we may provide. Yeah. Yeah, if there's the value, then you probably get in line to have that, enjoy some of the benefits of, uh, of that. Very good. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this can be generally seen as, so, okay, if I can connect everything to the internet, what does that, that mean? And the whole, I think the great thing about what you touched on there, the, um, the, the supply chain transparency, uh, I think every business model is being held up to the lens of COVID now, isn't it? it and um, you say, well, is this still relevant in the face of COVID? And I would say it's even more relevant now in the face of COVID. The, the, I don't know what you think about the, the impact of COVID on the, on the supply chains. Oh, I think it, it, you know, that transparency is even more needed now. I mean, you need to understand where your products are coming from and where they are in the chain. Um, and then ultimately their utilization. I mean, I think all of that, the tightening of the supply chain for better control and quality, um, I mean, has never been more important. And it's going to be more important, whether depending on, you know, onshoring versus offshoring, and those are all going to be critical decisions um, uh, that I think are going to be more carefully evaluated in light of the pandemic. But I think not just automotive, I mean, I think about, you know, many other uh, food supply and, and other areas. I mean, tracking and traceability is going to be really, really pretty critical. Yeah, and it becomes important. It seems like as things speed up and managing that supply chain is important. But if you have the connected component, it, it goes beyond tracking and it includes this tracing, this uh, what if something goes wrong? What if, uh, can I fix it over the air? Um, where did it come from? Who touched it? All of that stuff. And I feel like uh, the world has got a set of regulations. Sometimes there are obligations around tracking and tracing and recalls and uh, so forth that simply can't really be achieved practically with uh, paper and spreadsheets and that sort of thing. And uh, that's one of the opportunities that I feel like that for the companies that really figure out how am I going to connect these components to the internet so I know where they are, one of the things that will force this to happen and overcome some of this friction is that, um, you know, there's actually a legal obligation to do this stuff that isn't being honored particularly well, but everyone gets away with it because it's seen as being kind of almost too difficult to do. But once a few companies show that, oh, I can wire this car seat, this alternator and, or this airbag, and I, I can actually know who's, where the fix has been applied or where the replacement happens, suddenly the bar's raised for everyone and people that don't have that capability they're no longer able to sell. This is, I, mean, I, I, mean, I mean, just think about warranty today. It's basically you, you're going through a process of trying to find who owns the vehicle and you get stuff in the mail and it's a, a really haphazard, very error-prone issue with very low percentage 
uh, compliance of getting the warranty issues fixed. And so um, I think that, you know, obviously the IoT uh, will help fix that um, if you can trace the end product in terms of where, uh, where that customer, who that customer is. I think also I think consumers, you know, are going to demand more um, transparency on the products that they buy as to where they came from and um, who, who, they, who manufactured it and sources of the materials in the product. I mean, I think the, the consumer of tomorrow is going to demand that to be more apparent, more, uh, uh, more transparent to them as they purchase the product. So how does all of this communication happen? It seems like the car has become this communications hub. And if we're going to get to the internet in the internet of things, you have to get there through some route. What's generally the, what are the options in terms of getting from the component up to the cloud? Uh, any observations there? Well, I, I think, you know, all, all your cars, almost all cars are turning into basically hotspots. Um, and they all basically are hosting smartphones. I mean, whether it's through, you know, Apple CarPlay or Google Android Auto or the, in each of the OEMs have, or many of the OEMs have their own uh, access into the vehicle. So the vehicle is basically a computer with four wheels on it. Um, so the connectivity is there. It's just a question, do all the, what objects inside the car begin, become part of that network that can then communicate to the, to the cloud and to the, uh, into the internet. Um, so, I, I mean, I, it, it's, it's there, the, the, the technology and the hardware is there. It's just a question of those objects inside the vehicle and what information from those objects is going to be of value to have reported um, as part of your dashboard, ownership dashboard. And then the other thing that will happen is, I mean, vehicles will gradually transition to be, I think, um, and we're in a little bit of a, this gray zone right now with the pandemic, but um, you know, more shared mobility, um, more autonomous. Um, and, you know, as that evolves, and it's not going to be quickly, but as that evolves over the next decade or so, you know, there's going to be different kinds of ownership models rather than just, I own my car. There may be, you have access to a fleet of cars or you share cars or you use uh, micro mobility as a means to get around. I mean, so a lot of those things are going to evolve. I think the pandemic's put a little bit of a curveball in some of that, um, but um, it's definitely the trend. Yeah, I, um, the whole uh, self-driving autonomous uh, thing is absolutely fascinating. I uh, I have one of these electric cars, and I, I, I look at the updates, and I just. I'm fascinated to see where the changes are going to be. How, uh, you know, what's your view on us achieving? I can't even remember what the various stages are in the, in the, in the kind of progression to Nirvana where you lose the steering wheel. But uh, what are you seeing in terms of the pace of, of change and achieving that Nirvana? Is it, is it realistic? Is it going to happen? When do you think it's going to happen? Well, I, I think it's definitely going to happen. Um, I, you know, you referenced electric, and I, I mean, I've been driving an electric car since 2012, um, 2013. Wow. And if you'd have told me in 2012 that we'd still have 
2% penetration of electric vehicles, 3%, whatever it is, it's, it's low. Um, and that we're just now getting into a more uh, ramped up portfolio of vehicles from multiple OEMs with electric drivetrain offerings. And the infrastructure is beginning to get out there. So there's, there's more charging availability. Uh, you know, I would have said it would, you know, I would have thought it would have happened five years ago. And I think likewise with autonomous, you know, there's some irrational exuberance in the, on autonomous and how fast it's going to be here. I mean, in level two stuff where you can do smart highway driving, um, lane keeping, a smart cruise control, that's here and that's going to continue to grow. Um, but when you get into real day-to-day -day driving off the highway into cities and into congested areas, it's much more problematic. I mean, we've run an experiment in, in Grand Rapids where Seamless is located for the last year with, with May Mobility, um, which is an autonomous micro-mobility shuttle. Um, we hit, we've had about 60,000 rides on it. I will probably, it's uh, accumulated 50,000, 100,000 miles. I don't, I don't know what the exact number is, but it, it runs a two and a half mile loop with 20 stops in the downtown city center. It's been running for about a year. It shut down due to the pandemic in March. I'm happy to announce that we just opened it up again uh, with partnership with um, uh, Planet M, which is the Michigan Economic Development Corp, the city of Grand Rapids, May Mobility, Seamless and Seamless as partners. And then also we brought in some new clean technology because of the concern as it relates to mass transit on safety. So we're, we're partnering also with uh, GHSP, which is providing some smart UVC technology and Halicil, which is doing H2O2 fogging of the interior to provide basically six log surgical room cleanliness to the vehicles uh, at the beginning and the end of the shifts. And it's back on the road again. Um, but, you know, running it through the city, there's all kinds of issues that, you know, it can go from 0% autonomous to 100% autonomous. You know, obviously weather, we living in Michigan, there's snow, there's ice, there's accumulation of snow on the road. That is a big issue for autonomous. Um, you can have, um, you know, there's a variety of things like construction uh, that can cause issues for autonomous. Uh, reckless driving around the vehicle or reckless pedestrians or bicycles around the, the vehicles can cause issues. Um, you know, somebody parking a truck and wanting to unload furniture in the middle of the road. You know, there's, there's all these other behaviors that go on that make autonomous in a more congested setting challenging. And it's going to be all those edge cases that need to be solved for before autonomous can really happen um, at level five in a common setting. Um, non-controlled. So, I, I mean, I look at that, it's probably 10 years away, you know, before you really start thinking about autonomous uh, taxis moving around the city freely. Okay, that's good. I'm just doing the mental calculation of when I'm going to lose it and whether I'll be able to uh, still enjoy going to the beach in downtown, even though I don't trust myself to drive. So, I think I might just about be okay. Uh, Going back to the trial, though, can you explain a bit more how autonomous is it? I, I, uh, so you, how do you request one of these cars? Is there an app or something? And, uh... um, well, basically, it's integrated into the bus system. So it's basically 
the city circulator system that the bus runs, we've integrated these micro-mobility uh, vehicles into that route system. So there's a fleet of eight of them, and I think at any given time there's four of them on the road. They run six days a week, about 12 hours a day, and they just pick up people at the bus stops. Um, oh. And they do autonomous uh, functionality. There's a, there's a tender uh, in the vehicle with the, the uh, monitoring the vehicle's functionality in there to take over if there's an issue with any any number of things, whether it be weather or um, you know different obstructions that may occur on the road. Uh, but the the objective is to have it run basically in a hundred percent autonomous mode um, and uh, basically transport people around the city. And can you say how far, how close you are to that 100%? How often does a human being need to intervene? Well, there's days and there's that, that it can be 100% autonomous. There's just that there are also uh, periods of time where there's inclement weather, there's um, maybe an incident happen, unplanned construction, say a sewage main breaks. Um, and there's incidents like that that require a driver to take over. Um, and then, therefore, it's non-autonomous during those periods of time. Amazing. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Diana. Thanks so much for taking uh, time out. Uh, if someone wants advice or help, either if they're on the corporate side or a CEO of a startup that wants to pick your brains, um, um, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, you can get me at uh, Dana at seamlessiot.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us. And uh, it's always a pleasure. And I uh, always learn stuff. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. So it's got to the point in the show where, Dana, I kind of ask our guests about them musical tastes and the construct is what are the three songs that you would take to Mars and I sometimes start this by saying is music important to you but I think that's kind of a stupid question given that you have four guitars beautiful guitars hanging up on the wall behind you is uh, what what's what what part does music play in your life um well I mean I, I love music um is a way to relax, uh, is, is something to appreciate. Um, you know, seeing people that are really talented at music, you, you're seeing real artists. Um, so I, I enjoy it. For me, it's a way to relax. It's a hobby. Um, I've long ago quit playing seriously. I did that in, in college years, but uh, now it's really just about, you know, uh, playing songs that I listen to and I hear and I go, oh, that'd be an interesting one to learn. And it's just a great hobby to relax to. Um, so what did you do in college? I played, you know, college bands and um, parties and places like that with, with a group. All right. Um, well, what kind of music? Uh, mostly rock and roll. Back to my generation, right? You know, yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, okay. So if you, you had... This is like the toughest part of our interviews. You've got three songs uh, you had to take on a journey. What would the three songs be for you? Um, I think the first song that I would bring would probably be Stairway to Heaven. Um, and 
it's generationally tied right into me in terms of, you know, that was kind of a big song when I was, uh, you know, uh, late high school, early college. Um, I also you know, used to play it in, in bands. Um, it's got some great transitions and, and goes from soft to, to loud and um, some excellent uh, lyrics in it. I think probably um, second tune might be Imagine by John Lennon in the, the lyrics in that. If I was going to Mars and thinking about building a new civilization, those are some really powerful lyrics to build that civilization off of. Um, you know, maybe um, to, to go way back in time, maybe pick up something like Beethoven's Fifth, just to uh -huh. see the, the genius of human creativity and in, in the collaboration that exists within a, an orchestra setting. I think that would be another song that I might like to bring. I was thinking about cliche stuff, you know, like David Bowie's Space Odyssey or Life on Mars or something, but it's too cliche. So those would probably be the three songs that give some diversity and uh, have different rationale as to why I would pick them. Great, uh, great choices. So um, where, where did you grow up? Where, 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 where were you when you were a kid? I was born in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I went to high school in uh, uh, Ohio and then I moved to uh, Michigan. I uh, went to school at Western Michigan University, and then I got my MBA at Oakland University uh, in Detroit area. All right. And uh, was it the car industry that pulled you there? Was What did your dad do? Uh, my dad worked at uh, National Cash Register, which NCR. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he moved, you know, he's in sales, so we moved a few times with that and ultimately ended up in uh, the Detroit area. And then if you're in the Detroit area, you end up graduating college and in many cases go to the automotive industry. And uh, I went and started my, my first job as a General Motors uh, in uh, product planning and uh, marketing. So you learned the automotive industry really from, from the inside. And uh, um, so how, how did you end up at Forsea? Uh, for Sia, ended up, I, I, we were at uh, Johnson Controls, um, yeah. a group of us, and for Sia wanted to build a um, kind of a clean sheet of paper innovation organization, and I was recruited to be part of that organization, so we, we had the privilege of uh, really helping for Sia establish a, a global innovation process and teams and, and uh, help them innovate uh, in uh, the, the different product categories. So it was really great, really great opportunity, great experience. Did a lot of global um, work for them. They're a very international company, and I got the privilege of uh, establishing uh, technology listening posts in a variety of market, and then innovation uh, clusters in, a, in, a, in several markets, three different continents. So it's good experience, and uh, uh, was a fun process of, uh, of building that. Yeah, it's, uh, I think about my own career and the companies I've worked at. And, you, you know, you like to think you've contributed something and, and, and you have if you've been with, uh, you, know, you were at Fosia for like 14 years. So uh, there was something that was working very well there. But I feel like it's, you know, you join a band and you get this trip with the band and you go to places you would never have imagined on your uh, 
you're on. It's a, it's a great uh, privilege to, to be part of these uh, brands that uh, take you around the world and everything. Well, very good. Uh, thanks, Dana. Yep. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.